We're in the middle of our series in the book of Nahum. If you don't know where the book of Nahum is, that's probably not a bad thing because most people don't, but you should learn the books of the Bible if you believe in God. Um, but it's in the Old Testament, so you go back to the back and the minor prophets, you'll find it. And uh, my click, there it goes. And uh, it's war and peace, war and peace, that we are in the midst in our culture, if you haven't noticed, of war and the conversation of what really is peace, right? And all of us have our opinion, like we're willing to go to war over certain things, we're willing to make peace over certain things. We all have our standards, our morality, each country has its standards, its morality, but who's right? And Nahum is a prophet that God had asked to speak on his behalf, and Nahum is speaking to another nation. He's actually speaking to the nation of Nineveh. He's also speaking to God's people, the nation of Israel. It's actually the nation of Judah at this time. And he's explaining to them that, we'll look at this morning, he's explaining to them how to determine what to go to war over, what God says he'll go to war over, and how to have peace, what it looks like to have peace in a world that is constantly at war. I mean, even the world itself, creation itself is, is almost at war with itself. They're like, there's, there's an asteroid belt that keeps shooting things at us. Like, do you realize that? Like, stuff flies out and, like, bounces off our atmosphere. And we have a protective shield, you know, like, like an army that bounces it off or makes it disintegrate. Like, creation itself exposes the reality of the fact that we don't live in a safe place. We live in a place that is constantly problems and war. And so then the question is, well, then are we just live that way? Do we just live mean and at war with people? Or is there some kind of peace we can find in the midst of it? A couple of verses that we've discussed from Nahum, kind of the theme is Nahum 1-2 says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Bible says that God goes to war over his glory. That there can only be one God and it's him, and then he establishes everything else underneath him. And we, as humans, sometimes have a big problem with that. Why? If I'm honest, most of the time when I fight with God, the reason, or even fight the existence of God, it's because I want to be a God. I want to be in charge. You don't get to tell me. You don't get to tell me. You don't get to tell me. I've determined what makes me happy. I've determined what gives me peace. And so everybody else needs to do what I've determined, and not get upset. And yet God says, if you want to do whatever it is that you've determined, I am jealous for you because I want a relationship with you, and I am jealous for my glory, and I'm going to avenge wrongdoing. Because I've created the world, I've created you, and there is no other. And he also says, in 115, he says, look to the mountains, the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace. That it's not just about a war. God's just not this a jealous, avenging God. Like the religion Islam believes the first part. The religion Islam doesn't believe the second part. Islam is not a religion, even though they say it's peace, it's a religion where God doesn't want to know you. He doesn't want to be personal with you. He's God, you bow, you do what he tells you, and there's no relationship. And... That religion and many others teach that if you keep God happy, he won't be avenging to you. you. Your goods can outweigh your bads. And if you're a good enough person, you'll get to go to paradise. You'll get to go and God won't kill you or smite you, but he'll let you exist forever. That is not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview says that God wants to bring peace. And there's no way you can bring peace for yourself or I can bring peace for myself. And Nahum thousands of years ago spoke that. It's not just a New Testament Jesus concept. It's all the way through Scripture. The first week, we looked at the fact that Nahum defines who Yahweh is. Yahweh is the biblical name of God. It's the four Hebrew letters that make the tetragrammaton. And he defines, and he says, this is who the Lord, and when you look in your Bible, it's often capitalized. That capitalized is actually the tetragrammaton. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so he walks through and he says, Yahweh is jealous, He's avenging. He's fierce in wrath. He's furious with his enemies. He's slow to anger. He's great in power. He's good. A stronghold in a day of distress. Let me just ask you, isn't this someone you would want on your side? Isn't this someone you would want in your corner? Isn't this someone, if you were ladies, if you were married to a man, that you would want a man that's slow to anger? He's good, but when it's time to fight and step up, he's willing to do it? 
You see, God, the beginning, Nahum lays out, he says, you've forgotten who God is, Nineveh. You've forgotten who God is, Israel. You've made your own God, and you're not willing to deal with his full breath of his glory and his reality. And you keep trying to make him into your image instead of you seeing who he really is and how he's revealed it over and over again through history and his work. And Nahum lays it out, and he says, this is who he is. Last week, we looked at the fact that he said, and because of who God is, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. We're all in trouble before a holy, mighty, powerful, avenging God because every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us is a mess. I was listening this week to a, he's a famous evangelist that does a lot of evangelism stuff. And he was talking about the fact that the way we share the gospel today or talk about who God is is just so broken because we don't talk about the hard parts of God. We just say, you know, Jesus loves you, this I know, and that's all we leave them with. We don't tell them, and there's a consequence if you don't believe. We, we don't confront that. So, for example, the way this guy shares the gospel is he has conversations with people, and he asks them, he says, so you, do you think you're a good person? Oh, yeah, I'm a good person. He said, really, have you ever lied? And they go, well, yeah. He goes, well, then what do we call people who lie? Liars. Oh, okay. Have, have you ever... Have you ever looked at someone lustfully and went, whoa, you know, maybe even went further? Yeah, well, the Bible calls that adultery. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what do we call people that lust after people and want people that aren't their husband or wife? Oh, yeah, we call them adulterers. And he goes through this, have you ever wanted to kill somebody? Jesus said, if you have, you have desire to kill someone then murder in your heart and he goes through this whole list and he have you ever dishonored your parents yeah the bible says that you know what do we call someone who's dishonors their mother and father we call them rebellious they're rebels you see if we're really honest with ourselves we're pretty hopeless and that's why Nahum says, look, there's one who's coming. And when Nahum talks about one who's coming he says, there's one who's coming who's going to bring judgment. Are you ready? is what he lays out. You can listen to that message and what we talked about and the fact that Jesus is the one who came. He was the one that ultimately was coming so that we could pass by. The judgment would pass over us before God. And then the next one we looked at this week, we'll look at, I'll tell you in a minute, but remember the history that we're in. Here's the history. You've got to know this. I know most of you probably gloss over when you think history, right? Like, oh, I was a history major. I love it but I'm not going to make you love it. I guarantee, you know, some of you are like, no, math, please. That's my wife. My, my wife is the math person. She glosses over when I start talking history. When she does math, I'm like, I'm grateful for you. I don't, it works great. Like, so here, here's some history for you. In 930, Israel's kingdom splits. We've talked about this. Solomon takes over for David. Solomon's son, nobody want, listen, Solomon, David's other sons were not happy that Solomon was the one that took over. Why? Solomon was the adulterous affair kid. That was Bathsheba's kid. And all the others thought, well, Solomon shouldn't have the throne. I should have the throne because I'm better than Solomon. See, that's not how God works. Solomon, you see, God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at like all the other stuff and say, well, you're the oldest or this or that. He goes, no, I'm looking for the heart. Solomon becomes king. Solomon's sons, because Solomon, like a moron, doesn't follow his own wisdom. We do the same thing. I'll call myself a moron. I don't follow my own wisdom, right? There are times when I'm like, I know I shouldn't do this. Yesterday, I was grinding on something and I didn't have safety glasses on. And my solution was not to stop and take 10 seconds to go get glasses. My solution was to squint. I got metal shards. It's just going to go through my eye. Like, what are you doing? And finally, after a little bit, I'm like, what a moron I am. And I stopped and I went and got safety glasses. So I'm not, you know, that, that's a small thing. But for Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines when God said have one wife. Yeah. It ended up splitting the kingdom. He ended up in a mess and he didn't follow his wisdom. So his son takes part of the kingdom. A general takes another part of the kingdom. Solomon also put a lot of pressure on people. So the kingdom splits into a north and south kingdom. At the same time, God raises up the Assyrian Empire. And as he's allowing the Assyrian Empire to become strong, because God tears down and raises up nations, God sends in the prophet Jonah to Nineveh 
so that they know about him. And the Nineveh repents. They actually say, we believe in the God of Yahweh. Jonah's ticked off about it. It's a great story. At the end, Jonah's just sitting on a mountain mad that God saved him because he wanted them all dead. I mean, that's literally how the book ends, right? And so, so the people repent. Nineveh says, okay, yeah, we believe in the God of Yahweh. Then what happens a few years later after a few Assyrian kings, the Assyrians des- decide to conquer and invade North Israel the northern part of the kingdom. Now, God allowed that to happen and God asked the Assyrian Empire, treat my people well. They didn't treat the people well. God said, if you don't treat my people well, even though I'm using you to discipline my people, if you don't treat them well, then I'm going to be avenging and jealous after you. And that's exactly what's getting ready to happen to the Assyrian Empire. At the same time, Sennacherib comes up, he sieges Jerusalem, he goes after the southern kingdom. God didn't ask him to do that. He goes after the southern kingdom, he gets rid of all evidence of Yahweh and the entire Assyrian empire. Manasseh becomes king, he's one of the wickedest kings, but then repents, and after that, his sons, it's a mess. Nahum is in the midst of this, and Nahum is the one that prophesies in the midst of the biggest mess you can be in, a a Judean kingdom under assault. Then Ammon comes to the throne. He only lasted two years because he was so wicked, his own kids killed him in Israel. Then Josiah comes to age eight, comes to the kingdom and leads to one of the greatest revivals in the history of the Bible at age eight. Because he says, I want to believe the Bible. I like it. Let's read it as a bedtime story. Literally, that's what happened. And then he said, I think everybody should read this and know and obey it. And so he made the kingdom obey it novel. Do what God says. As a result, after Josiah, the nation becomes evil again. Nineveh falls. Nineveh, Sennacherib loses that battle earlier. And then finally, God sends Nineveh through the, sends the Babylonians and Medes to destroy Nineveh and make Judah vassals that lasts for a couple of decades. Judah rebels against Babylon, which God told them not to do. And then Judah is destroyed by Babylon. And 70 years later, then God restores his people back to their land. It's a great story. It's amazing what happens. This morning, what I want us to look at very simply is this. I am against you. Nahum 2.13, where we'll pick up, says, beware. I am against you, the Lord, the declaration of the Lord of hosts. If you take the time from the prophet Nahum until the southern empire is wiped out and now God's people don't have a temple, they don't have a land, they don't have peace, they're now slaves and captives under Babylon, which God warned for how many hundreds of years, don't do this. He was very slow to anger and they said, well, he must love us and want us to keep doing this because it's not bad yet. So we'll just keep doing it because it's not bad yet. It's not bad yet. God's like, it's going to get bad. Please stop doing it. No, it's good. Okay, I'll send a wicked king. Does that get your attention? Oh, for a little bit, we'll say we're sorry, and then we'll go right back to what we're doing that you say not to do. It's the same thing you and I do. Don't judge them. Look at your own heart. We have the same kind of heart that they do so often if we're not careful. So here's the deal. Nahum would have been like today. Are you ready for this? The mess we're in as a nation Take someone who made some predictions or told us some things of where we were headed in 1974, and that's where we would be today. That's the distance between God sending Nahum and the southern kingdom of Israel falling to the Babylonians and Medes. The full fall was even a couple of decades after that. You see, God is very patient. He is slow to anger. He is good. He doesn't want to bring justice and wrath, but he will. And he will send temporary discipline. He will show us what it means to be for him and what it means to be against him because he loves us. Because he cares about us. And he doesn't want to be against us. That's not his desire. We'll look at that this morning. He desires to be for his people. But here's the problem we have. We live in a culture and in a Christian culture where the self-esteem movement is imploding on itself. We have told people, God loves you, everything's great, you're the best person ever, and we have built and built on that without telling people, you're in trouble 
before the God of the universe if someone doesn't deal justly with your unrighteousness. It's not wrong to build people up. It's not wrong to tell people they have been created in the image of God. Don't do what you're doing. God wants to use you and put you on display. It is wrong to tell people that God loves you no matter what. He does love you. God doesn't separate his wrath from his love, and he doesn't separate his love from his wrath. God is God, and it all happens at the same time. He doesn't just stop doing something because that would make him not God in that area. He's no longer the God of wrath. He stopped being God. No, it's all together always the same. So God warns. He says, beware. Like, be careful. Think about your life. I am against you right now. Does that scare you? It doesn't even give you pause to think, oh my goodness, God may be against me in my life. Here's the great part. We'll see as we look through some scriptures. God doesn't want to be against us and he's provided multiple ways for us not to be against him. And instead we go, no, I'd rather be against you so I can have what I want than be for you and what you want. And then we get mad and say, God, why are you against, why do you, he also tells us that if we're for him, we're going to be treated like he's treated. We just read like, how many, 300 years of history and how did his own children, his own people treat God himself? Most of the time, rebelliously and badly. And so he tells us, just because I'm for you doesn't mean everything in this world just works out. That's not the history that I've laid out. This is a broken world with people who want to use each other. And our job is to call people to believe that God wants peace with them. But if they don't embrace that peace, that he is against you. That's a hard message. That is not a message we like to talk about in church today. Matter of fact, if you talk stuff like this, you'll be like, you're legalistic. You're mean. You don't love people. I didn't write the book. God says it more than once in this three passage psalm and all over the Bible, he says it. Here's the deal. I don't want you to believe that everything is against you. Because if you believe that, you'll not have peace and you won't strive for peace. I also don't, I want you to understand that if God is in you, if you know him, then you can know whether war or strife, no matter what happens, that you have a peace that doesn't depend on you. It's a supernatural peace that comes from God. I want you to understand that this morning. I mean, think about this, how rebellious we are. Think about this. You might say, well, I'm not really against God. We live in a culture that we're against our own biology today. We can't even accept the biology we were born with in the DNA X and Y XX chromosome that's in every human being. We won't even accept that part of the created world that God has done. We refuse. We refuse to accept that. And then we want to say God's for us because Really what we really think when we say God is for us is this. And I'm the same way if I'm not careful. God is for anything I put his name on. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. There's a lot of things Jesus' name gets put on that he wants no business with. There are people who manipulate Jesus' name for their own glory and power. They did in Jesus' day. Judas loved saying he was with Jesus. And he betrayed him and hung himself because he found no peace in Jesus and no peace in the God of the universe. And we've got people who are against their own biology, who are killing themselves, who are in a mess because they don't understand what it means for God to love them and be for them. Here's what Romans 1 says about this idea of how do we get to a place where God is against us. Here's what Paul says in Romans. Paul was an apostle. 
He was a Jew. He was very well trained. He gave up everything to follow Christ. He was a murderer of Christians. His life was changed. He actually stopped murdering Christians and became a Christian and then became one of the greatest apostles and church planters ever in the history of the world. This guy's life was turned upside down by the reality of realizing that he thought God was with him, so he was killing Christians on behalf of the Jews, saying God's with us, but not with those Christians, to the point where he said, oh my goodness, my whole life I've been against God, I now need to be with him. And he surrendered his life. And here's what he writes. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people, that's you and I, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, we don't want to really know what's right. We want to know what works. I don't care if it's right. I just want to know that it works. That's the definition of unrighteousness. It's the very definition. I don't care if it's right. I feel good. Or I don't care what's right or wrong. I want to kill them. Because it makes me feel powerful. Like, The definition of unrighteousness literally is, I suppress what's true so that I can get what I want. He says, since what can be known about God is evident among them, evident in all of creation, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, wrath. When we got asteroids flying to the earth, we should think, wow, there's a God who lets asteroids. I wonder if he's angry. Yeah, there's a God who gets angry. Many religions realized that, and so they came up with the earthquake god, and they came up with the sky god, and the sun god, and the snake god, because snakes would bite them, and they'd be like, oh, he's angry. No, it's just a snake. It's not a god. Okay? He goes on, he says, he's made it that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Nahum is saying, look, God is against you. It's, Paul's saying, look, People have placed God against them for so long, for so many generations, they don't realize it. And then he says, it can all be understood through what he's made. As a result, people are without excuse. You, myself, the world around us is without excuse of the reality of who God is. Both his love, his mercy, being a father, a mother, bringing life into the world, which is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Mother, Father, Son. Like he's given us all these pictures that declare the good and the hard things about his character. So we can't say, well, I didn't know. No, you could figure it out if you wanted to. If you cried out to him, God says he'll hear you. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. That's one of the key things. One of the key things of realizing that you are truly surrendered to God is that you realize you don't deserve life. You don't deserve anything. You deserve to be separated. You deserve for God to be against you. And the fact that he lets you breathe another moment should give you pause and incredible gratitude. And instead, you, me, creation, people, spend most of our time complaining about what God hasn't done instead of telling him how great he is for what he has done or trying to manipulate him to get him to do what we think should be done instead of just saying thank you for what is being done and I embrace whatever comes because you're God and I'm not he goes on and he says the gratitude's a key example then he says they claim to be wise listen I teach the scriptures, and I tell you this all the time. It's why we give you the Bible. I don't have like four points of my own, and I I want you to know scripture. I don't want to stand here and claim to be wise. I want you to check me. Go to the word. Check to see if what I'm saying is in the scriptures or not. If it's not, confront me. Confront me. I don't want to teach badly. I don't want to lead you astray. I want to teach you to be grateful to the God of the universe. I want to teach you to, see, to show you that, that God isn't against you because of what he's done. He says, they claim to be wise. They became fools. See, this always happens. Pride goes before the fall, the Bible says, right? We get prideful. We think we got it all under control. And God has an amazing way of saying, you're not God And he allows us to see we're not God. And it's normally painful. (laughs) 
He says, you exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. We love to create idols. Our Our hearts are idol factories. And instead of crying out to a God that we can't see or feel or touch, we'd rather create things that become gods for us that we can see, feel, touch, and manipulate. Every human being does it. Every religion throughout all of history has done it, except Christianity. Goes on and says, therefore God delivered them over. So when you've gone down this road of saying, there's no God, I'm God, or maybe there is a God, but I'm not going to be grateful to him. I'm going to use him. I'm go- he wants me to be a God too. And then you start creating gods in your life. He says, when you do that, God says, I turn you over. He delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts. And you'll see it clearly because one of the first things we do is sexual impurity. So their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and to worship and serve something created instead of the creator who's praised forever. Amen. And he says, this is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. We say this a lot in our church. For God to be against you based on the brokenness of creation and the mess of the world we're in and the wars and the powers and that, that fight each other that we're seeing all the time in our globe, all God has to do to be against you is this. Creation will not treat you well. The world will not treat you well. God does not have to send lightning bolts to be mean to you. He just has to turn away and stop protecting you. Take his hands off and you are at the mercy of the world on your life. But see, we don't embrace that that's the world we live in. So we get angry with God because we think, well, you're doing all this stuff to us. And God's like, no, I'm allowing you to experience the reality of your world so that you'll cry out to me and be grateful to me. Now, does sometimes he intervene like he's going to intervene on Nineveh and allow? Yeah, he's going to take his hands off Nineveh and allow the Babylonians and the Medes to succeed. And then they're going to come and they're going to destroy the Ninevites. Is God involved in that process? Sure, he's involved. But for us to kill each other, all God has to do is take our hand, his hands off. We do a really good job of killing people. All people do. We do. By the way, people who kill people normally win because you're dead. <laughs> if someone else doesn't intervene to kill that person, guess what? They keep killing people. God says he delivers us over. He allows you to go down roads you never thought you'd go down, to end up in places by choices that you've made that you've never thought you'd end up in. He allows that Because he doesn't want you to be separated from him and he doesn't want to be against you. He wants you to see that there's someone who loves you, but you keep rejecting everything, making idols, going down this path. God says, stop. It's a beautiful picture. Nahum goes on to say this to this incredible nation, one of the strongest empires to ever exist, this Assyrian empire, incredibly wicked, incredibly devastating. It says, I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. Young lions meaning like that was their symbol. It, it, they had to kill a lion. That was part of the process of becoming a man or becoming a leader was to kill a lion in this culture. And he's like, I'm going to get rid of all the really strong people you think are going to save you. I'll cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. After the Assyrian Empire falls, it's never rebuilt. Nineveh is still in ruins outside of Mosul, Iraq. Buried. It's never been reestablished. Goes on, it says, Woe to the city of blood. Woe to the city that thinks that the way to get what you want is by taking it by force and in any way you can. We live in a culture that that is the dominant belief. Whatever works. Whatever works. Doesn't matter who I hurt. Doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Whatever works, you do it. To an extent. 
because we have laws. So, so if you just murder someone, you're, you're going to go to prison. Then you can't get what you want. So you've got to learn how to like, kill people without killing them. Make them miserable. He goes on, he says, this nation's totally deceitful. It's full of plunder. Never without prey. There's always a fight to fight. They crack the whip and the rumble of the wheel, gallop the horse and the jolting chariot. Charging horsemen, flashing swords, shining spear, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies without end, and they stumble over their dead. God says, you guys are so bloodthirsty to get what you want. You place yourself at the top of the food chain with no acknowledgement of me, with no humility, with no surrender, with not asking me if I asked you to go to war or not, not asking me if you're doing righteous or not. You just have decided it's what you're going to do. And he said, you even twist the scripture to make it work. God says, I'm against this. I'm not going to allow it. Let me ask you this. When you see blood... What's your response? Do you vomit? (laughs) You know? Are you like, cool? Some people love, like, they're like, oh, that's, wow. Like, that's fascinating. The proper response to seeing blood should be sadness. It should be like, oh, they're bleeding. And then a question of, but maybe they deserve it. <laughs> like, like, sometimes you bleed because you do stupid stuff and you didn't listen, right? There's a running joke with someone in our church, I won't name who, who did some work with me at one point. And uh, I asked him not to pick up a trash bag because it had shards of glass in it. He didn't listen, so he picked up the trash bag and he threw it and it went right through his leg, shard of glass. Blood spewing out. We're on the job side. I'm like, oh, crud. I don't have Band-Aids, so I'm like taking rags and wrapping them around. And I'll never forget as he's driving and we're trying to keep blood from spilling all over. He's like, I probably shouldn't have picked up the trash bag, should I have? No, it's all right. But now you've got the consequences of bleeding all over the place and I can't really stop it. I love you. I'm sorry it happened to you. Uh, where do you want to go? Medicare or, or Medi- the Medi- Meta place or whatever? Like, sorry, not Medicare. Like, do you want to, do you want to go there? Like, he's like, no, I, I, I think I'll just try to do, get it to work. He still has a really bad scar. Funny thing is, is I have a matching scar because I didn't listen to myself when I was cutting something one day and put a utility knife in the same spot. So we're like brothers, like with matching stupid scars. I tell you that, Because it can seem like I cut myself and you cry out to God and say, why did you let me do this to myself? Versus saying, wow, I'm bleeding. God, help me. God looking and saying, I know, it was a bad idea. I'm sorry. And moving on with your life. That's the proper response. This nation and in so many nations, it's not the proper response to blood. And, And listen, blood, right? When you're bleeding, you know that now life is against you. What's the first rule of first day? Thank you. Why? Because life is in the blood. Your body heals itself. And if you got no blood, you got no healing power. God's the one that said life is in the blood. We're going to read that in just a second. About 4,000 years ago. But he said... I don't mean life is in the blood as in you're supposed to drink it like the other nations who created idols and they kill animals and drink the blood and sprinkle it all over them and run around. They throw their children off the cliff to sacrifice to the blood God, cut their kids' heads off. Most of them, Nineveh did that. Aztecs did that. The Incas did that. Most of the great empires sacrificed children. God's people were kind of weird that they didn't sacrifice children. See, God said, life is in the blood, but it's not your blood that will save you. I will provide a substitute. And you're not to drink it. you got to be careful with it because blood is important. By the way, when people lose too much blood, what, what do we do to try to save them? We give them infusion of someone else's blood. And the Bible says that we're saved by the blood of 
Jesus? How much more does God have to do to prove himself to us that he's created a creation that continually declares who he is, how to save ourselves, how to do life? How long? Leviticus says this. Leviticus is a book of the law of the Old Testament. It talks about how the priests were to act. It says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Atonement is a covering. That it's going to be a blood covering. Because you can't save yourself, and the shedding of your own blood won't save you. You can't beat yourself enough. Someone else, something else has to die in your place, or I'm against you, God says. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you and no foreigner who lives among you may eat blood. No rare meat. No medium rare needs to be well done. Just saying. Okay? We're under a new covenant, by the way, so it doesn't apply, but I'm just kidding. Okay, by the way, our youth pastor runs a steak restaurant. That's why it's so funny that I say that because he's looking at me right now. I can feel his eyes burning through the back of my head. So it says, any Israelite or foreigner living among you who hunts down a wild animal or bird that may be eaten must drain its blood and cover the blood with dirt. It's sacred. It's to be spilled out Because the earth will be covered with blood. It's the only way the earth is going to be saved. It's to be spilled out. And when it's spilled out onto the ground, it's to be covered. Since the life of every creature is in the blood, I've told the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in its blood. And whoever eats it must be cut off from his people. In other words, I'm against you. This blood doesn't save you. It's a symbol of the blood that will come that will save you. This is just a temporary covering. Our bodies are just temporary flesh until we get to heaven and God gives us new bodies. It's temporary. And God is saying, look, don't be like the other nations that think that it's the blood that saves. It's me that saves. Blood is just the picture of your need to die. Something's got to die. There's no way around that, God says. And we know that. Why do we have a free country? Because a bunch of nations went, oh, let's just create a free country and call it the United States and let them exist and just clap for them. Is that why we have freedom in our country? Because people shed their blood so that we could be free. You can decide whether that was right or wrong. We can argue that historically, whatever. I'm just telling you, it's the reality. The only reason we have freedom and peace is because there are people willing to die and have died for us. And there are people that are sitting on front lines right now willing to die for us. And other nations look and go, don't take them on. Because people will shed their blood. We keep talking about all the ways that we're going to come up with these new laws to save us from all this wickedness. It's really simple. Until people surrender to God and say, I'll give my life for others instead of taking life from others, and if someone wants to take life from someone, I'm going to stand up to that, we'll never fix the problem. No matter how many guns we get rid of, propane tanks we get rid of, cars we take away when they drive through crowds, we can take everything away. I promise you, people will find ways to kill each other. I'm not saying we shouldn't make it harder for people to kill each other. I'm just saying we keep trying to come up with solutions that avoid the reality of God and the reality of who he is and what he says in his word. Nahum goes on to say, because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery. By the way, witchcraft and prostitution or sexual immorality almost always go together in a culture. Almost always. When you create idols, idols are things that you do what? You use to get what you want. So wouldn't it make sense that sexual immorality would grow because sexual immorality is using people to get what you want? Duh. And there is an enemy called Satan who wants you to believe that you can manipulate God so that he can keep you separated from him forever. Instead of a God who's just blunt and honest. He goes on and he says, Who betrays nations by her prostitution and clans by her witchcraft? I am against you, God says. Remember, when the prophet Jonah came to Nineveh, the prophet Jonah came to Nineveh and said, God is against you. He's going to destroy you many years before this. And the people of Nineveh said, Oh my goodness, you're right. 
we surrender, we cry out to the God of Yahweh, we repent, we'll stop. And they didn't get destroyed. God sends them another prophet, and now their hearts are so hardened. They are so powerful and profitable. They have the largest empire ever. When Jonah first came to them, they were just starting to come together kind of as the United States of Assyria. So they needed God. Now they're big and powerful. Almost 300, 250, 300 years later. Oh, that sounds eerily familiar. And they're big and powerful now, so we don't need God. John, when Jesus was talking, we looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago, but as it relates to the blood and the prostitution and the, the idea of the idolatry of hearts that we want to use people, John says, what can we do or what can we do to perform the works of God? So these people come up to Jesus and they ask him, look, we want to do what God says. We don't want God to be again. We want to do the works of God. We want to, well, Jesus just doesn't tell them, oh, that's, that's so neat. You, you want to. You want to obey, you want to do the works of God. Well, that's so nifty. I'm so glad you came to me. You must be, you must be a God follower if you want to do the works of God. It's not what Jesus does. He challenges why they want to do the works of God. See, most of us would love to do the works of God so that we could be seen as a God. So we could control life and manipulate situations and not have to surrender our life. And Jesus knows at this point he's getting ready to give his life, not demand that they worship him. He goes on, he says, Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. If you're against me, Jesus says, if you're against the Messiah, then you're against God. There's no other way for salvation. There's no amount of Old Testament laws you can obey. By the way, you can't obey them. He says, the only way you're going to be saved is to believe in the one that's coming to save you. Then he goes on and he says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. He's talking about the manna in the Old Testament that God sent. He's saying, I'm the bread. I'm the stuff that God sends that you can't make yourself that feeds you. The stuff that you got sick of and complained about and so God sent so much quail it was coming out your nostrils. He goes on and he says, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm kind of thirsty. <laughs> He's talking about the true heart thirst and heart hunger that we keep running to everything in this world to fill. He goes on, he says, but as I told you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. We want to do the works of God. Great, believe in me. Oh, no, not that. Tell us some other things we can do. Um, I, you don't believe in me. I'm not for you. There's nothing you can do. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Uh-oh, there's a problem. The Bible says not to eat flesh and drink blood of... Anyone who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood... Uh, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. In other words, all the stuff we're eating and drinking now doesn't last. It's fake. <laughs> You're actually going to expel it out of your body and we have to do something with all that waste. It doesn't last. Jesus isn't talking about actually like, okay, let's eat Jesus right now. Kill him and cut him into pieces and distribute him among everyone. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritually feeding on him as the word of God. Then he says, look at this. The spirit is the one who gives life. See, you think you're the one that gives life to you. Uh-uh. It's the spirit of God. It's, it's continually eating of God, the spiritual things that gives you life. That's what gives you life. And the Spirit always leads people to Jesus, the Bible says. He says the flesh doesn't help at all. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They're not earthly. They're not physical. It's something bigger. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, who will we go to? This is after a bunch of his disciples, after this teaching, they leave him. They say, we, know one, we don't like your message, Jesus. We don't like that we can't do what we want to do and follow a bunch of rules and get what we want. A bunch of them leave. Jesus says, will you guys leave too? Simon Peter speaks up and he says, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. Peter doesn't say, you're the one that gives us a great life here. Who else are we going to go to where all the crowds give us money and we all drive Mercedes and have big houses? And I mean, who else are we going to go to? That's why we're hooked up to you, man, because you bless. And we got the blessing. And so that's why, that's why we're connected to you, Jesus. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to be blessed by God. There were rich people in the Bible. They were also commanded in Timothy to be very generous. He says, Lord, who will we go to? You have the eternal words of life that we're looking for because we've tried everything else. Romans 8, 31, this is Paul again, says, what are we to say about these things? This is after he lays out everything you can think. I mean, he lays out this beautiful picture about Jesus for like seven chapters, right? Like seven and a half chapters he's talking about Jesus. And he says, what are we to say about these things? Paul says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? People love to quote that verse, but they don't understand what it means. See, for you to be for God, you would understand as Peter did that you're not looking for anything else in this world to satisfy you because you're looking for another body and another world to come. He says, he did not even spare, Paul says, his own son, but offered Jesus up for us all, how he will not also with him grant us everything. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who is the one who justifies who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, remember Christ Jesus means Messiah who is Yahweh who saves, is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also sitting at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. I speak the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. In other words, I know God is for me, he says, that I have intense sorrow. And continual anguish in my heart. I was kind of expecting right there for him to say, I have intense peace and happiness and joy and life is awesome. Because God is for me. And instead, Paul flips it and he says, I have intense sorrow and anguish. Even in the midst of knowing all the glory of God and rejoicing in the glory of God. Rejoicing in everything that Jesus has done. I recognize that the same reason Jesus left heaven to come to earth is the same reason why God hasn't sucked me up into heaven but has left me on earth. It's because people don't know him and God is against them. And it breaks Paul's heart. And he says, for I, all, I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah, the one who is coming for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and they belong to the adoption, the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promise, but they don't believe in the one Christ Jesus. Paul's heart, while rejoicing in what he has in a relationship with God, he's not trying to get stuff for himself. He's looking and saying, I'm grateful, God, for all you gave. Help me to give so people can see your gratitude and be grateful. First Peter says, dear friends, we looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. This is the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I want to develop a genuine understanding with a reminder so that you can remember the words previously spoken. That's like all the Bible previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. First, be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff. Where's your God? He's against you. He didn't love you. He didn't care about you. He isn't going to hurt you. God just loves everybody. 
That's all scoffing. It's, it's, not, it's saying what God didn't say. Saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all these things continue as they've ever been since the beginning of creation. That's called a macroevolution. It just continues millions and billions and trillions of years. Just happened. Do you know how much faith that believes that everything just happened? That's like looking at your Apple Watch and being like, it just happened. All the chemicals and stuff just came together. And the universe is way more complex than your Apple Watch. And we don't even question that someone created it. If someone found it a thousand years from now, they wouldn't find it and be like, look at all the elements that came together to make this. They would go, wow, we did an archaeological dig and someone must have made this pot. What's it used for? But we won't give God credit. How arrogant. That's what Paul, that's what Peter's writing here. He says, they will willfully ignore all this. Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water and through water by the word of God. Everywhere we go in the universe, what are they looking for on every single planet? Water. Why? Because everything's created. Life comes from water. Wow, God said that a couple thousand years ago before we understood science. Amazing. He goes on, he says, but the same word, he says, by these waters, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. He's talking about Noah in the Old Testament. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay in his promise. He also doesn't like speed up his anger. As some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any of you to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's saying, I don't want God to be against me. I surrender to you, God. I want you to be for you, and I want to be for you, not I want you to be for me. Then he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. The earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, By the way, we all know that someday the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. It's a promise. It will happen. If it doesn't get destroyed some other day, some other way, someday what's going to happen is a supernova is going to happen of our sun. It's a promise. Our sun's going to burn out. It's going to supernova. It's going to send out an explosion that will incinerate all the planets. We believe that scientifically. Then we read this and we're like, no, that can't, God's mean. That couldn't happen. But we believe the science. He goes on, he says, the heavens will be on fire and be dissolved because of it and the elements will melt. Oh, sorry. Since all these things are to be destroyed this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for earnestly desire the coming of the day of the Lord. Listen, if you know God is for you, you don't have anything to be scared of. Nothing. Doesn't matter what you go through. Doesn't matter what happens. You don't have to be afraid because there is a God who says, I will protect you. I will be with you. You may not be protected here and now. You may get wiped out with everybody else. That's what happened to his people. But there is an eternal protection. And when everything disappears, there's a soul in you that will go on. And then Peter says, but based on his promise, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Because we know we live in a place where unrighteousness is everywhere. Nahum is trying to get these Ninevites and these Israelites to see all of these things that Peter and Paul and Jesus keep calling back to. Look at what the prophets wrote. You know this is true from creation. You know this is going to happen. Please understand there's not a book in the world that lays it out as clearly as the Bible does. Nahum goes on to say, This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. And display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? And where can I find anyone to comfort you? Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? I'm going to put your skirts over your face and display your nakedness. And I don't know if I want to believe in a God that does that to people. Here's the great thing about our God. 
He doesn't do anything to anyone that he doesn't take himself. Jesus on the cross was stripped of his clothes and they exposed his nakedness. He was crucified naked. He shed his blood into the dirt below the cross like they were to shed the blood into the dirt to be covered. And they just covered the blood up, the Romans would, after the blood was shed. Jesus himself was treated with contempt. Jesus himself was made a spectacle on a mountain hung on a cross for nothing he did wrong. There's no other religion where a God says, I will pay the price you owe. And it's been the plan since the beginning of creation. So when Nahum tells them this is what will happen, he's not saying because God's on high and he's going to get you. It's because he's going to come one day and do what you're unwilling to do. And you will have to stand in judgment before that. Or you can embrace him doing it on your part. Here's what Isaiah says as we wrap up. Isaiah 53, we read this in our family devotions this week, and it just hit me as I was preparing this message. Because this is the prophetic word of what happened to Jesus many, many hundreds of years later. Here's what it says. Remember, Isaiah's writing this not knowing who Jesus was, not knowing about Roman crucifixion, not knowing about how he was going to die, and all these things come true when Jesus dies. It says, who has believed in what we have heard? Will you believe in what you've heard this morning? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He grew up like him, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Jesus grew up for 30 years, and we don't know anything pretty much about his life. It's part of the reason why he was rejected. Because he couldn't just believe that some little baby boy would grow up and just be a Messiah. Then he goes on, he said, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't like blonde-haired, blue-eyed Fabio, okay? That was not how he came. He wasn't like, wow, he doesn't look Jewish or Middle Eastern at all goes on, he says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like some people, like someone people turned away. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains, but in turn regarded himself stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. Remember, he was had a sword shoved through his side for our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for that, for what we did, the iniquity of us all. He was opposed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He didn't say, I'm going to get you. He's just like, why are you doing this? He goes on, and he says, Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was not cut off from God the Father. He may have died an earthly death and his physical body died, but he was always connected to his Father. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave and the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, he was crucified between two criminals and he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's, a very rich man's tomb, a borrowed tomb. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish. And he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. You don't want God to be against you? This is the Messiah that will save you. This is how you know God is for you, is what Jesus did. And Nahum is saying, there is a God who wants to do this for you. Isaiah prophesied not too much, right around the time of Nahum, Isaiah was prophesying, there is a God who's telling you, you will be saved. Someone will take the place. Please believe in that instead of trying to put something else in your life to save you. He goes on to say, therefore, God says, because my servant was willing to surrender his life I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as a spoil because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. If you feel like you're a rebel against God, 
yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. I'm so glad he did because I'd be hopeless without it because I rebel against him so often. I fight God so often and he has every right to be against me on every level. And instead he says, I don't want to be against you. I've sent my son. I've sent the payment. In the Old Testament, it was to believe in the day when Jesus would come. In the New Testament, it was to believe on the one who came, who had come. In the, now for us, it's to believe back on the one who came, who was prophesied in the Old Testament. And all the Bible together, all of creation looks for the day when Jesus comes again to reign as a mighty warrior where he does to all nations and all earth like Nineveh had happened to them. That's the story of the Bible. I can't get around it. And he wants to bear your iniquity. Nahum finishes up with this. Verse 7, he says, where can I find anyone to comfort you? Where can you find comfort? Where do you find comfort? When you think things are against you, when life is hard, where do you run for comfort? Because that's probably where your God is. You're trying to find peace when you know there's a war. That'll expose your heart every time. And God says, run to me. Run to me because you can keep running to me no matter what the problem is. You can keep running to me forever and ever and ever and someday there will be no problems. Then he says, are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her rampart and sea and the river, her wall? You don't think, Nineveh, this is going to happen to you because you're a good person? You're better than those Egyptians? You're better than those Babylonians? Crush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put and Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity, and her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. Again, you think, wow, that God would allow this, that God would say this to a group of people. How mean. Let me see. Who else gave up their kingdom and died, and the people that follow him, their families were martyred and killed, and they were put in prison, and they were supposed to be dignitaries of heaven, and yet we bound them in chains and didn't want to listen to them. Oh, that would be Jesus and the apostles. Again, God doesn't dish out anything. He doesn't ask his own family to take. He doesn't ask us to participate in. Verse 11 says, You also will become drunk. You will hide yourself. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. What are you going to run to to try to fill yourself up and get drunk with? How are you going to try to hide when there's no place to hide from an almighty God? Who are you going to go to to seek refuge when you're dead and you stand before almighty God? You can run to a lot of people for refuge right now that will enable you in your sin, that will enable you to just keep believing the things you believe, that will use you as their kind of love toy to prop themselves up. You can go hide in all kinds of places right now thinking that you can get by. I always laugh sometimes at all the preppers, right? These people that are, well, I'm ready for anything. Yeah, for about a year or two. Then you run out of supplies, then what? <laughs> oh, and that's assuming nobody comes to get all your supplies and you run out of ammo. <laughs> Can I just tell you, the Lord says he wants you to be fully intoxicated with him. He says he wants you to hide yourself in him. He says that the only place that you'll find real refuge and peace in the war of this world is in him. And he doesn't want to be against you. He wants to give you the comfort that you can't find anywhere else, but you have to surrender. It takes death of yourself to have life in Christ. It's an exchange. No longer me. I surrender. I'm yours. You tell me how to live. You tell me how to do life. And God gladly says, thank you. And I'll give you life. And I'll give you more abundant than you ever thought possible. And it's not an earthly life of abundance we're looking for. 
It's the abundance of all the stuff the world can't offer, an abundance of love, an abundance of joy, an abundance of peace, an abundance of mercy, an abundance of self-control in your life. God brings all those things in, and it's amazing. And I've watched him do it in my life and be patient with me and slow to anger when I deserve for him to be against me for 28 years. He'll do it for you. But you have to ask him to come in. Jesus said you have to believe on the one he sent. And in the Old Testament, they believed on the one he would send. In Jesus' day, they had to make a decision about the one who was sent. And we now have to make a decision about the one who is sent because he's all coming one day again. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you for Nahum. I thank you for the clarity that your word gives. It's, it's all the way through. We looked at Leviticus and Romans and Isaiah, Peter. We looked at Nahum. We, we looked at all these passages and they all keep pointing back to the same thing. Lord, we are a broken people. We are a wicked people but you want to give peace. So Father, we come before you and I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's not surrendered their life to you, that today would be the day they would consider to stop being at war with you and finally find the peace they've been longing for. Lord, it doesn't mean you take them out of the war. You ask us to actually engage that once we know you, you give us the power of the Holy Spirit. You give us the, the armor of God, the Bible says, so that we can now fight the right battles in our life instead of all the wrong ones. And so, Lord, I pray that if anyone here needs to believe in you this morning, that they would admit their sin, they would admit their brokenness and their need, they would admit that they're a, a liar, a thief, an adulterer, and they just say, I can't save myself, and they would surrender to you. And if they do that, they can know that you are for them for the rest of their lives. Not because of what they do, but because you always fulfill your promises. And for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts like the Ninevites, like northern Israel and southern Israel. I pray that you would soften our hearts in this moment. Lord, would we stop trying to get you for us instead of just admitting that we need you and just be grateful for what you've already done. For those of us who are believers, I pray that like Paul, while we'd have joy in you, we'd also be able to and willing to experience the brokenness of the wars we see around us and engage those battles in love and compassion and truth. And Lord, I thank you that you are the only one true God. There is no other. Thank you that we have no excuse. And Lord, I pray too for anyone who's not ready to make a decision this morning, Lord, I thank you that you are slow to anger and you are patient. But there's coming a time when they'll have to make a decision. And so, Lord, I thank you that we as a church can be patient and slow with people, but also explain the urgency. We give you the praise. We give you the glory. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you did what only you can do for us. We pray all this in your name.